0: This is the Raw and Radical Women in the Arts podcast, and I am your host, Maureen Broadbeck. In each episode, we explore the mechanisms of identity, vulnerability, authenticity, empowerment, and social change through conversations with inspiring women who are making history and challenging the status quo in both the art world and in society.
1: Radical and rebel.
0: We talk about their real-life challenges and celebrate cis and transgender women so that you can be inspired, empowered, take action, and further your critical understanding about what it means to be a woman in the arts. Hi and welcome to the Raw and Radical Women in the Arts podcast. According to Wikipedia, the Guerrilla Girls is an anonymous group of feminists, female artists devoted to fighting sexism and racism within the art world. The group formed in New York City in 1985 with the mission of bringing gender and racial inequality into focus within the greater arts community. The group employs culture jamming in forms of posters, books, billboards and public appearances to expose discrimination and corruption. As you will know, the Guerrilla Girls wear gorilla masks to remain anonymous and use pseudonyms that refers to deceased female artists. Today, I am pleased to have a conversation with Frida Kahlo and Katie Colvitz. They bring incredible, inspiring concepts and ideas about living an artist's life, what it means, and how we can all make a difference. Welcome to the show. I'm very thrilled to have you both here. I just basically wanted to start by asking, how did you start it? Because I know you started in 1985 and what triggered everything was the exhibition at the MoMA called an international survey of painting and sculptures, but maybe it started a bit before, maybe you were already discussing this. So I was wondering if you could talk about this and talk about the general mood at the time. It was the mid eighties. I was thinking what triggered it all for you?
2: You know, the mid-80s were a very political time in the United States. It may not be considered that much, but Mm. for artists and cultural workers and, of course, activists in general, it was the Ronald Reagan era where very conservative, you know, wealth and power were considered good, everybody else bad. So we came up as artists in this time where we knew there was so much wrong with the system. And the generation before us, which created the feminist movement, had made some gains. But by the 1980s, there were still these problems. In terms of art, almost all the opportunities in the art world went to white men. And Mm -hmm. we were uh, women artists, artists of color who knew... That there were so many great artists, but we weren't getting the attention that we all deserved, and people weren't taking our work seriously. Mm. And there was uh, the Museum of Modern Art had an exhibition in 1984 of 169 artists, of which only 13 were women and eight artists of color. So we realized, you know. We had to do something. And a bunch of women, not us, called a protest. Frida and I went to this protest. It had no effect at all. And we understood at that moment Mm. that people thought the art world was a meritocracy, where the gatekeepers, the powers that be, always picked the best. So if you weren't in the museum, you sucked. You weren't any good. And that was our aha moment. We realized Mm. there had to be a better way to tell people about this issue a way that broke through their preconceived notions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And somehow, I feel a lot of things are still the same. Your new book is an amazing showcase of so many things that you did. How do you see it has changed, evolved or not evolved?
1: Well, it has changed because a certain consciousness has been raised about the issue. And people in public won't, say things they used to say. I mean, when we started, people would say women artists and artists of color just aren't uh, involved in the discourse that's interesting to the art world. You know, there was this idea that there was a universal kind of aesthetic or a mainstream. They wouldn't admit it was basically white, male, European, and about market success. Although at that time, the market was not such a big deal, but there was a mainstream It was very difficult for women and artists of color to break into because it was, you know, it was sort of obsessed with white male uh, experience. Uh, That doesn't happen now. You know, there are women and artists of color, you know, who are being included in histories and it's impossible to write an adequate history of, you know, of our culture without including all the voices in the culture. However, you know, the art world is still an Olympics of a few winners and many, many losers. And that really is a function (laughs) of capitalism because capitalism needs a few winners and a lot of losers, you know, to sort of, you know, undermine it, it, to express its values. So, Um, what we're looking at now is the fact that you know art history can't really be reduced to, to a few geniuses. It yeah. really is a broad thing, and um, it's not just about success and failure. It's about producing significant cultural information and experience. So we're now looking a lot at the you know institutional biases what happens in the institution and what do museums really stand for you know are yeah. they about wealth and power or are they about cultural
0: history yeah yeah, yeah. You talk about this concept of that white male genius. Can you explain a bit this further? Because I found this is really interesting because it's still very present in the everyday culture of people. People always talk about this genius that was born with the genie in them. And how it's, it's only them that, you know, can, can actually succeed and be creative enough and be, you know, known enough and be successful enough, etc.?
2: Well, it's like the star system in almost any field. Uh, mm. For some reason, people like to believe that these guys spring out of nowhere with brand new ideas different from anybody else. And so that, you know, like Picasso begets um, Pollock, beget whatever, on, yeah, and, on yeah. and on and on. Um, and... We think this is quite amusing, really, because we know, like all artists and people who know about or care about how creative work gets done, we all know, all of us know, that every artist in every field is part of a particular time, and they share a lot of ideas, they use a lot of ideas. They work on things together and see things together. And that's true in the whole realm of culture. I mean, artists look at music, look at film. You know, uh, we all look at everything all at once. So we think it's very, it's actually hysterical that the um, <laughs> the world clings to this idea of the great male genius. And um, you know, the concept of the male gaze, the male gaze, that's what people look at in art. That's what they see. These geniuses looking at culture, looking at women and how they view that. And we've decided that it's time to call that the male greys. Yeah. And we're going to do a big piece in London about this later this year.
0: Yeah, I saw that. This is Mm -hmm. really exciting. So (laughs) About these smell grays, how do you think this does affect our society and how we live in this society? There's a video on your website and you asked a question, which I find really interesting. Does life imitate art or does art imitate life? <laughs> well, that was something that was sort of coined
1: in early modernism. And oftentimes it was to shift the focus onto the artist's life and to real experience and, you know, the whole era of happenings and conceptual art and the ephemerality of art. But we're asking it a different question. We're asking, does the way men behave and have behaved in the history of patriarchy express itself in the art? And Mm. um, it's kind of curious, you can go to any European museum, and you see most of the women in the paintings as being, you know, naked and idealized, and the men are the aggressors and the active ones. So um, I'm not sure that art history has always thought about it in that way, but we would like to focus on how the idea of sexual aggression in our culture, and we all know that it's happened, you know, since whenever. How was it expressed in the art? Is it part and parcel of the art? Now, this is not to to moralize on the art, but just to say that it is there, that many of the, you know, artists who, male artists who did these masterpieces, you know, behaved miserably towards women in their lives. So... Um, Is there a connection? I mean, look at Picasso's private life. Look at Gauguin's private life. And that even goes, you know, to uh, the present day with with contemporary artists who have been finally exposed, you know, for their sexual aggression towards women.
2: You know, and museums are grappling with so many issues today. Lots of issues of corruption, um, institutional racism, um, not paying people enough, firing people in the middle of a pandemic. But they're also grappling with What do you do when it comes out that an artist was a sexual abuser or a sexual predator? And we envision meetings inside these museums where they try to figure out what to do. Do you acknowledge Mm. this and the wall label for the artist? And thinking about this led us to do one of our recent posters called Three Ways to Write a Museum Wall Label When the Artist is a Sexual Predator. So, uh, you know, the first way would be for museums afraid of alienating their billionaire collectors and the artists themselves. So, of course, they do something that doesn't say anything. They just do the status quo. And the uh, the next, <laughs> the very last one is, you know, to be really honest about the situation. And, and sometimes it, it probably is a good idea to put an artist's sexual abuse right up there or sometimes not even show that art for a while.
0: Hmm. Yeah, because it feels like uh, sometimes we are all under some kind of a spell. And I'm very curious why no man react against this, <laughs> because there is a lot of women, you know, through the feminist movements and the different movements there were that were standing up for something, but men do not. And it's curious.
1: You know, it really is. It's because feminism and, you know, equality is very threatening to men. They have to give up some part, to white men in particular, they have to give up some part of their privilege. And that's very hard to do. I think also in the evolution of uh, liberation movements, to become an ally is the last thing. Um, Right now in the United States, there's this big discussion about being non-racist and being anti-racist. So yeah. I think there are a lot of men who say, well, yeah, I'm a feminist, but they're not anti sexists hmm. And I think also in terms of sexual violence, that was normalized behavior until just recently. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of men have to reconsider their own behavior and maybe their behaviors cross the line sometime in their lives. And we haven't figured out a way for them to come to grips with that and to resolve it and to have some reconciliation with it. What I think that's necessary, we have to have more men as pro-feminists and anti-sexists and anti-predators. So I think that's the next step. And it's really hard. And I think it makes history richer to have a painting, you know, in a museum that is identified as the work of an artist who did mistreat women in his life Mm. or even her life. That's important. That's an important part of history. It makes it richer. I mean, biography has to become a part of art history. Uh, We have to consider the artist's lives when we consider their work. It's part of the story. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Yeah, because all these... Artwork in museum portraying women, you know, that way as submissive or uh, tortured or raped or anything like that. It somehow, without the context and the history and the narrative, it makes it okay. Yeah.
2: Well, also, they don't teach in school that a lot of those paintings from centuries ago that have those kind of depictions are mythological, and these um, stories from Greek uh, mythology gave artists the opportunity to really go for it in a mm. way that you couldn't do if you were, you know, a photographer today and all your work was, you know, men raping or murdering women. You know, that wouldn't get you very far today. But then it was yeah. they, they put over this notion on all of us that this is high art. Seeing these situations, this is the ultimate in high art. And I think it's important, you know, just to bring it back to artists today, there's so many fantastic artists doing mm. so many things, including pushing the envelope in every way, you know, annoying people, scaring people, you know, um artists about so many important educating, you know, so many important subjects and creative work is so important that when you bring it back to artists, uh, it goes to what you were saying, Frida, a few minutes ago. I mean, the more, the better. You know, having, having more, more work in institutions, on the street, everywhere,
1: mm.
2: is so much better than just trying to have a catalog of the top 10 of this era, the top 10 of that yeah. era. There's just so much creative, wonderful work, and artists are so devoted to it and spend their whole lives devoting everything to each of their individual explorations.
1: Just to add a bit of a side note, you know, European arts, fascination with Greek mythology is very selective because there are many more strong women in Greek mythology than there are in Catholicism and Christian, you know, Christian legend. So um, it'd be really interesting to take a look at the, you know, at the strong female Greek characters that are ignored, you know, by European, you know, Christian Mm. European artists as they're trying to idealize life. Hmm.
0: So what I love about what you do is that you touch a wide range of social issues and injustice, discrimination in the film industry, environmental concern, et cetera, et cetera. In your opinion, why is it so important to talk about all of these different issues?
2: You know, we are not um, systematic and Mm. we're interested, all of our members, in a wide variety of issues. So we kind of take them on try to do something about them that might change people's minds. And if it works, if we put it out there, and if Mm. it doesn't, we don't. But, you know, we started, you know, dissing the art world for its discrimination. But our Mm. idea from the beginning was to create a new kind of political art using strategies of persuasion, like advertising. So we've Mm. always, our work has, you know, we do books, we do videos, we do huge billboards, um, but it's all based on that kind of um, graphic execution. Um, yeah. all, and we started out doing street posters and bringing our work directly to, to people. Disruptive headlines, visuals, killer statistics to try to prove our point. And um, we've come to call that creative complaining Mm -hmm. And all these years later, we now kind of understand that creative complaining works if you can present it in a way that breaks through people's preconceived notions. So they have to think about it, this issue, differently in the future. And that's what we look for whenever we do something. We might not succeed at the same level every time, but that is our plan.
0: Well, how do you gather your facts? Because I think the fact that you're using fact and statistics in a way is very important because it shows something and people cannot say no after that. They have to listen to the message. How did you do to gather some of these facts?
1: Well, early on, it was much harder, you know, especially Mm. before the internet and uh, we would have to research the statistics. Uh, It was kind of tedious. Um, However, there were a couple of shortcuts, and we never really were statisticians. We always looked for the statistics we needed to uh, support our message. Uh, And early on, the art world put out, at least in the United States, something called the Art in America Annual, which was this sort of brag sheet that came out once a year, which every gallery and museum would buy an ad or space in it, and then they would capsulize their exhibition programs. So early on, Mm -hmm. we we joked and we said, let's do our five-minute research in the Art in America Annual, and we would just go in in five minutes. We could just shift around the information and look at it differently because it was raw you know, statistics then. But now it's a little easier to do online and everybody is doing it. If you plug in, you know, the highest price paid for a living artist, boom, up it comes. So you have to kind of know what you're looking for and also have an idea of what statistics will make your point. So I would say that all that information, all that raw data is out there for anyone who wants to use it.
0: Hmm. So you worked with over 55 different people as part of the Guerrilla Girls. Can you talk about the importance of collaboration and spreading ideas for you going into the public space?
2: You know, we're we're an unusual group because we really formed not to just be a, a group talking about issues, which of course we do, but we formed to be an action group. And our action from mm. the very beginning at the very first meeting uh, was to do street posters. We wanted to get our message out, not have people try to tell us it wasn't good, it wasn't working, you know, just like do it. And we were as surprised as anyone that it worked. You know, we had this crazy idea and it worked. So the collaboration of the group has very often been in pushing that forward. You know, someone has an issue and we work on trying to create some kind of poster, video, you know, book, action, whatever, that really disrupts how people usually think about this issue. And from the very beginning, we were dealing not just with sexism in art, although our first poster was about that, but also with racism and also with the system of art. I mean, Mm. you can see in our book this through line that starts at the very beginning with posters like When racism and sexism are no longer fashionable, what will your art collection be worth? Mm. Since most collectors had virtually no women or artists of color. Mm. Um, You know, starting with that to our code of ethic monument for museums today, which also goes into all of those issues. Mm. It's interesting, the art world system... People just take it for granted, even people inside the system. Yeah. Many artists today don't want to be part of that system. Mm. And if you do want to be part of that system, you're basically a production machine. You know, if your work is worth a ton of money, you have to spend all this time churning it out, which is why you go to shows and you see the same thing over and over and over and over because that's what billionaires like. They want to have the same thing that everybody else has so they can go into each other's houses. Oh, you have one of those, you know, Mm. (laughs) and I got um, mine first. (laughs) Yeah. Right. What did you, what did you pay for it? Exactly. So, but there are also so many artists whose work is, very overtly political and really about exploration of culture making change in culture you know whether they're doing a painting or a performance or a video or you know banners and giant street posters you know like hmm. we do that i think i think it's really important to remember there are many different art worlds and yeah. the ones that that maybe Um, someone listening today who's, you know, um, in school, the one you're thinking about joining, maybe that's not the one to join. Maybe we Mm. really need new paradigms of how to be an artist, which is something we have thought about for a long time, even though some of us do participate in the system, and we have many um, what you'd call successful artists in our group over all these years, but Mm. also we are rebels who want a new system.
1: Yeah. If I could add something about working collectively, um, it's very messy And, and everything that you can imagine happening in a 35 year relationship, you know, has happened, you know, to us times 60 or however many members we've had. So, um, it's, you know, it's not easy, but it's wonderful because you have access to so many more ideas. And mm. in a way, I, I think part of the difficulty is that artists are trained to be individualists. It's a, you know, it's a problem with our educational system. I don't know mm. so much in Europe, but certainly here. You know, students in art are are taught to revere their individuality and their obstinacy and yeah. Um, And that plays into the system that wants genius. And unfortunately, art schools oftentimes prepare students for a very you know, monumental art world that funnels everyone into the kind of gallery and museum system. And that's like training someone to win the lottery. And so Mm. few people win, win the lottery that what happens to the rest? Shouldn't there be an education system that's broader than that, that Uh, prepares students for all kinds of creative lives not just the one of selling you know million dollar artworks to billionaires
0: yeah for sure yeah it's like everything is made a bit to support that system that kind of one-way system when in fact there's just so many different ways to live your life as an artist and create so how do you juggle this as being also artists Because I'm sure it has some permeability in some ways. Well, I
2: think when people feel they can't juggle it anymore, you know, uh, I mean, the Gorilla Girls at any one time have always been pretty small. So we've had very diverse uh, members over so many years, some for decades, Mm. you know, some for weeks. So everyone has the opportunity to bail out for a while if they need to do that. But I can only say for me, I love doing this work. Mm. It is so challenging. It's so interesting. And we're so lucky that it has made a difference in its own little world. So it's so worth doing. And I can't imagine ever wanting to stop trying, even as busy as my individual career is and has been if i had to give that up i would give it up in a second to do this work that Mm. really means something to people
0: yeah beautiful what makes it so timeless what you do with the career girls it is timeless right
1: (laughs) i think that that's up to other people to decide um because (laughs) i feel that this is very specific and um you know our each work is about something that happened at a certain time uh, yes, maybe altogether it makes a history and a story that can be timeless. Um, maybe the fact that it 's about you know finding some kind of truth, finding some new um, you know, new take on the world i mean isn't that what the writing of history is about it 's about reinterpreting mm. the past through the present so i don't, it, i don't think we can answer that except we always I, try I think I can answer more.
2: that in a different way if you don't mind. Um, You know, I I think that the fact that we have made a difference means something. And basically, the way we think about it is, you know, we're a model for just keeping on going and keeping up the fight. You know, and we always say, you know, do one thing. If it works, do another. If it doesn't, do another anyway. Just keep chipping away. And if you look at all of our our trajectory of our work, that's what we've done. We've just gone, bam, 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 let's try this, let's do this, let's try this. Mm. And for everyone out there, I think it's really important not to be demoralized because something doesn't work, because if you just keep it up over time, you'll find that it will work.
0: Mm. Nice. So your new book, it's called Guerrilla Girls, The Art of Behaving Badly.
1: Well, we've always wanted to um, do a compilation of our work so that it could all be seen in one, all in one place at one time. And we also wanted to do the book ourselves. We wrote all the captions. We didn't want any of those filters, uh, you know, essays talking about why it's so important and... And how we did it and all. We wanted to tell that story ourselves. So we had the opportunity to do that in this book. And it was a, a great experience for us because we had to go back and look at things that we did a long time ago and try to remember the circumstances under which we did the work. Um yeah. We wanted to, I mean, in the book there are copies of our original press release, which if you look closely, it was done on a typewriter. Um, You know, some of our early work was done with press type before the internet. It was a great storytelling aspect for us, and it really took us all the way from 1985 to last year, and I think of it as a little chunk of history, and I think you can look at the work uh, and talk about how the work was crafted, how it was made. But under all that, you can also tell the story about the evolution of the art world as we know it and what some of the problems are and how it's changed and how it hasn't changed. And also, you know, we just pick away at institutional bias and at um, discrimination and exclusion in every form. And actually, Mm. it it makes me think about a future, what are what our future targets should be, seeing how um, what has happened to our targets in the past.
0: Yeah. Oh, I had such a pleasure reading it and looking at all the, the images that, that were in it and having the explanation that goes with it. And the fact that it's chronological like that, I thought it was just great. Yeah. Well, we
1: also wanted to do, you know, lists of our exhibitions of all the places we've been in the world, um, of all of our work so people could see, you know, they could easily find early works that we did yeah. about income inequality or, you know, about institutional bias right from the very beginning. There, there have been themes, you know, that have run through our work. And I think that the, it was a challenge to do an index, sort of mm. help people find that. It was also important, you know, to to make it affordable. If you notice mm. it's not a fancy coffee table book, it's not yeah. super expensive. We're hoping that every art student in the world will want to have a copy of it.
0: Yeah, great. Excellent. So how does someone become a member and join?
2: That's the saddest question to answer <laughs> because we 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 are as I said before, we've always been small at any one time. You could never no. do the kind of work we do with a hundred people, a thousand people. Yeah. It's, even I don't even think we've ever maybe once had 20 people. You know, we're like a little cell yeah. with um, fantastic members all along the way. So we've never been open to people joining. It's kind of an organic thing that people come in, come out, and it's always by invitation. But we support everybody who's trying to push this rock of discrimination and corruption up the hill and change Mm. things in their society and societies everywhere. So we're happy when people use us as a model. And we also mm. go around, not, I mean, we can't do that right now at the moment, but um, we can still do it uh, by Zoom and things. We do workshops with yeah. people who want to figure out, you know, kind of put themselves in our shoes for a little bit and we can explain our our strategies and our, and our philosophies and stuff like that. And there's so much creativity out there. I mean, yeah, honestly, anyone, I wish everyone could be a guerrilla girl, but everyone doesn't need us. So many people yeah. are doing so much amazing work.
0: Hmm. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, this is really cool. Is there anything you want to add?
1: I think it's important to encourage artists and activists to do work like we do, and to not, you know, give up on trying to change a system that uh, might exclude them or a system that they feel is unfair or unjust, because it's uh, very powerful to call out oppression.
0: Yeah. What's the next big fight for you? How, How do you see that? I
2: think they're all ongoing fights. We've been going after museum corruption for years, and that has really, really an issue right now. Mm. Uh, Museums are trying to reinvent themselves. They're stuck with their collections and their moribund ways, but there have always been great people inside museums trying for um, more inclusivity, less superstar, one after another kind of exhibitions. And in terms of that part of museum culture, it's an important time now. But museums also have been very discriminatory in who they hire. And one of their biggest problems is in the United States, less so in Europe, but it still exists there, museums are so dependent on super wealthy collectors who donate money to them. The Museum of Modern Art in New York, the chairman of their board, is one of the best longtime friends of Jeffrey Epstein. Even after Epstein was convicted of sexual trafficking. So that's the kind of people, not that everyone's bad, but they have people like that on their boards, and that guy's still there after all this came out. We did... um, quite a few pieces about this, including a, a big um, sign right outside the Museum of Modern Art telling them to get rid of this guy. So mm-hmm. there's that kind of corruption. There's the fact that museums can't just collect anything they want. They need to get money to do it. Yeah. Unfortunately, over years and years, they spent that money, like a huge amount of money, getting one work of art by some superstar artist instead of collecting the real story of our culture. Yeah. We think they have to cast a wide net, pay their employees the right amount. I mean, really good wages, not fire people. You know, the minute things go bad where they're, you know, the head of the museum is still making millions of dollars. They have a long way to go. There are people inside who want to do it, but it's going to be a long, tough road. Yeah, so there's still a lot of work
1: to do. (laughs) Well, we're waiting to see when museums open up again to see if anything has changed. And if it hasn't, they will hear from us. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) That is so right. I love that.
2: (laughs) And everyone else, please, not just us. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, and everyone else. They genuinely encourage and support everyone to challenge the status quo, the systems, and find ways to invent new paradigms of how to be artists in our world today. This podcast is supported by Pro Helvetia, the Swiss Arts Council, and the city of Lancy. We are so thankful for their support and commitment to culture, women, and the arts. Thanks for listening to Raw and Radical Women in the Arts podcast. Learn more about our featured artists and sign up for news and updates by visiting our website, rawradical.com. Please consider leaving us a comment and review on your preferred podcast listening platform to help others discover the show and take part in this global dialogue. She I am Maureen Broadback and until next time, keep the dream alive.